Welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. I am your host, Tyler Crawley, and we got a lot to get to, mostly because we haven't talked in three days. Normally, it's just a regular weekend, but in this case, a three-day weekend, and hopefully you enjoyed your three-day weekend, or if you did have to go back to work on Monday, my condolences. Hopefully, that was a good Monday. I was lucky. I had a three-day weekend, so here we are on Tuesday morning. So, the first, the big story that, of course, came out on Friday was the jobs report that I'm sure you've heard everyone talk about, probably ad nauseum. So I guess I won't focus on it maybe as much if we had talked maybe the day after, but now it's, seems like it was a while ago. The jobs report came out, I guess it was, four days ago. And yeah, the first initial reaction to the jobs report was, of course, negative. Everyone was expecting 500,000 jobs. We actually got 194,000 created in September. And in case you're wondering where the where that job growth was, leisure and hospitality, they are once again picking up the pace. What was it? Was it a July or August where we saw zero gains in leisure and hospitality? Not the case. In September, they led the way. 74,000 jobs created. Professional and business services saw 60,000 jobs created. And retail saw 56,000 jobs created. The shocking thing about the report was job loss all the job loss took place in local government education, a drop of 144,000 jobs. So private payroll was pretty good. It was the government that was really kind of weighing everything down in the month of September. Now, oddly enough, despite that anemic number, we actually saw the unemployment rate drop 04 percentage points to 4.8%. And Neil Irwin noted on Twitter that in the last cycle, we did not reach a sub 5% number for six and a half years after the recession ended. It was January, 2016. In this case, we were able to do it in a year and a half. So we are already on better footing than we were coming out of the last recession. Now, the number of long-term unemployed saw a big drop in September, falling almost 500,000 to 2.7 million. Meanwhile, the number of persons on temporary layoff was unchanged at 1.1 million. Now, the one bright spot, because... As I said, when the report initially came out, it was, oh, this is horrible. This is a horrible report. But then it was like, well, the unemployment rate number fell. And then one of the bright spots was wages. Definitely one of the bright spots. Averagely, average hourly earnings increased to $30.85. That is a 4.5% increase when compared to wages one year ago. And weekly earnings were also up 4.5% to $1,073. And 58 cents. Now, this is important, not only because people want to see their wages go up, but inflation is running very hot, or at least hotter than we have seen in quite a while. But wages are still outpacing inflation. If you look at the last uh, PCE index data that we have, that's, of course, the gold standard. So the Fed looks to see what's happening with inflation. It showed 4.3% inflation year over year. So we are seeing slightly, slightly 0.2% better wages than what is happening with prices. Let's hope that continues to be the case because when you go negative there, it's not going to be, not going to be good for the economy. But I'll tell you the one shocker of this report, no doubt, especially if you're someone that was a big believer and one of the reasons why our 
job creation was not as stellar as it should be. This is an argument that was made by a lot of Republicans. And I'll be honest, I mean, I definitely thought that that was playing a role. And of course, I'm talking about extended benefits. So a lot of people argue these extended benefits that were created during coronavirus were necessary at the time, but now we are far removed from that and we need to get rid of those benefits and that will get people back to work. They're no longer going to be paid to sit at home. So we got rid of the benefits at the start of September, September the 4th, and nothing happened. I mean, literally nothing happened. There was no impact whatsoever. In fact, the labor participation rate actually fell. So fewer people... We're looking for worker participating in the workforce in the month where we got rid of the extended benefits. Now, it fell. It was a not even statistically significant fall from 6.17 to, I'm sorry, 61.7 to 61.6. So not like a huge number, but it's still bizarre that that number fell. And so now a lot of people are saying, okay, now what is the issue? Because we're still 5 million fewer jobs in the economy before the pandemic. So the big question, what's going on? Where are those 5 million jobs? Well, I actually, on Friday morning, when the jobs report came out, was lucky enough to talk to Scott Lincecum from the Cato Institute, a smart guy. If you don't follow him on Twitter, you definitely should. I asked him, you know, Where are those 5 million jobs? Basically was the question that I had. And he put it very succinctly because let's face it, it is Twitter that we're talking about. He said, retired, sick, dead, home, life choice for a parent, self-employed, not able to enter the country, lots of reasons. So there's a big bag there and we're going to see what is kind of true going forward. But here's what I, I found very fascinating about all of this. In the mid to late tens, it was believed that we had reached full employment, right? I mean, the rate had dropped pretty significantly. And there was this argument that it was going to be hard to see, keep seeing over a hundred thousand jobs created every single month. And yet it continued to happen every month. We found a way to create hundreds of thousands of jobs in a supposedly tight labor market, which is why we did not see as much wage growth as say we're seeing now. So now's the exact opposite. So we're seeing some pretty strong wage growth. And because of that, we, even though there's supposedly all these jobs that exist out there, people can't find anyone to work. (laughs) So it's just, it's very bizarre that back in the, like I said, mid to late tens, there was this belief that, well, we've got to be close to full unemployment or full employment. And we never seem to get there. And the wages reflected that. And then now we're in a situation where everyone's like, no, there's millions of people who aren't working. And yet we have 10 million job openings, which by the way, We are going to get job opening data. That's going to be coming out at 10 a.m. this morning. Give us a better picture of what is happening with the economy. But we had record setting job openings for the last three months. We'll see if we can do it again this morning. And yet people can't find people to work and wages are going up. So it's just it just adds to this bizarreness that is the economy right now. Now, speaking of the economy. So obviously, I mentioned Republicans earlier. Republicans were sort of very strong into this idea about we're paying people not to work and we get rid of that extended benefits. People are going to go back to work. It didn't happen. Well, that jobs report comes out. And like I said, at best, at best, it was a mixed report at best. That's being generous. Well, the Democrats, they have to hype it and say, oh no, it was a great jobs report. Great jobs report. In fact, White House Chief of Staff Ron Klein tweeted, actually, this was a good jobs report. 
And so we can have that debate, good jobs report, bad jobs report, whatever it may be. The question is, how is the Fed going to react? And the reality is, even though the report was underwhelming at best, it looks like the Fed is probably going to move forward. At least that was the analysis that I saw over the weekend. Nick Tameros at the Wall Street Journal said that the anemic job growth and sub 5% unemployment rate appears to be enough to, quote, keep the Fed on track to announce a taper after their November uh, meeting. Now, Tameros was not alone on this. Brian Chapita at Bloomberg also believes that tapering is going to be happening, saying, quote, the Federal Reserve will almost certainly announce its plan to begin reducing its bond purchases next month. But the U.S. labor market definitely isn't making it easy for it. Now, conventional wisdom says that tapering will lead to a jump in mortgage rates, but that might not be the case. There was a very fascinating piece over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal by Telus Demos over at the Wall Street Journal. I just said that. Uh, (laughs) See, that's a problem in my notes when I write Wall Street Journal twice. Demos explains that when it comes to mortgage rates, the two major inputs that impact rates, outside of, of course, interest rates themselves, are the yields on bonds that package up mortgages for investors and the potential profit on selling mortgages into those bonds. So those are two areas that are very important. And what's fascinating is that we are going to be in a situation where both of those inputs are being pulled in different directions. So thanks to the Fed's buying of mortgage bond yields have been unusually close to treasury yields. This means, according to Damos, quote, that there is the potential for the spread to normalize, pushing up mortgage bond yields even faster than treasury yields. This would in turn put upward pressure on mortgage rates as mortgages are sold into those vehicles. So that's pushing it upward. But this could be offset by lenders. Demos notes that, quote, during much of the pandemic, mortgage originators have been highly profitable, earning unusually big margins on selling Fannie or Freddie eligible mortgages into the bond market. Even though the spread has narrowed some, it is still higher than it was in the years preceding the pandemic. This is leading people like Bose, George, an analyst at KBW to conclude that, quote, at least for the next few quarters, much of the impact of tapering is likely to be felt more by lenders than by borrowers. And so this hot housing market that people are saying, well, it's definitely going to cool off. And there's no doubt about that. We're going to talk about that in a second. But... It's not going to cool off as fast as maybe some think if rates can continue to stay low and lenders who have been benefiting tremendously from these big spreads are now willing to take a little bit of a a hit. I mean, they're still going to be making money, but maybe not passing it on so quickly to potential borrowers. Now, in these current times, it's hard to know anything for certain. (laughs) No doubt about that. However, it does seem as if we have some idea of what could be coming next. The Fed is going to start tapering and the housing market will continue to remain relatively hot. But, you know, beyond that, it's anyone's guess. And speaking of the hot housing market, so the housing market, as we all know, smoking hot. It's just been crazy. We have seen some signs that things are starting to cool that we haven't seen that happen with prices just yet. But, well, keeping with the theme of today's podcast and newsletter, the Wall Street Journal, there's another great piece by Nicole Friedman, who wrote that housing prices have soared 
but appraisers haven't always kept up with these new elevated prices. So why does this matter? Well, as we know, mortgage lenders will typically lend only enough to cover the appraised value of a home. So when an appraisal comes in below the contract price, the buyer then has to make up the difference, renegotiate, or the deal falls through. So how big of a problem is this? Well, according to CoreLogic, about 13% of appraisals came in below the contract price in August. That was down from a recent high of 19.7% in May, but is above the 7.3% that we saw in January of 2020 in more normal times. And so the big question then becomes, what are buyers doing to fix this? Well, for a while, and this is obviously with cash buyers, they were just foregoing the appraisal. They were just saying, nah, we don't care. We're just, we, this, this, we think the house is worth this. We're willing to pay for you. We don't need an appraisal. Now, you can't do that if you're getting a mortgage. Now, if you, get, now if, <laughs> if you do get the approval, you don't need one. But usually, this is a case where someone's coming in with such a, uh, a high offer that they're saying they're going to pay cash. You know, that's, you, that's when things were the hottest that they were. And at that point, you were looking at 29% of buyers saying we don't need an appraisal. That's now dropped to one-fourth. Now, according to one Phoenix area real estate agent, Nicole Dudley, what's happening in most cases, buyers who don't have the cash to you know, buy a house and they're, they do need a mortgage, what they're doing is they're plunking down down payments of around 5 to 10% and then keeping that money that would have gone to a down payment and they're now using that to match the difference between what the appraisal is and what the contract value is. And so that's one of the other things you can do is if there's a $5,000 difference, then you just put extra $5,000 up. One of the problems is that, you know, it leads to bigger loans and it leads to people having maybe less equity in the home or whatever it may be because their down payment is only X. So at 20%, it's now 10% because they're only going to get X amount of money from the mortgage company. And so if they want to get that house, they got to pay in cash and yeah, it can create some problems. There's no doubt about that. And uh, you know, it's, it's funny because you know, you hear some appraisers say that there are ways that you can deal with a hot housing market, but when things are moving as fast as they are in some markets, it's yeah. I mean, you have to be able to back things up and that's good. That's, that's what we want. We, we don't want 2008 all over again. And that happens when you start appraising houses for values that don't actually exist. So we want appraisers being smart. We want them using actual data but sometimes the data is moving so quick, it's hard to get an accurate sense. But I also think that's the way markets are supposed to work. If you can't keep up, then you know what? Maybe it is a good thing if things slow down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, sure. Some people are going to get burnt in this situation, unfortunately. But overall, I think it's a good thing. I think if they're saying, hey, you know what? We can't justify this house being worth this much. Figure something out. You know, either you provide the cash Maybe you don't buy the house. Maybe that's a smart idea. Maybe it turns out that house isn't worth what you think it is. And that's how markets are supposed to work. All right, we got to go. Like I said, I told you, we got a lot. We had a lot to get to. No doubt about that. So as I mentioned, we got a lot of data coming out today. Uh, 9 a.m., we got monthly rate lock data, I think, from Black Knight. 10 a.m., we got job openings. Are we fourth month in a row? See a record number of job openings? It'd be weird when you're only creating 194,000 jobs. Uh, 11 a.m., we got consumer inflation expectations. And then at three, or excuse me, four, we got the Mortgage Bankers Association forbearance data. So we're, we got a lot to talk about tomorrow's show. <laughs> so get ready. Be, be prepared for it. We got to go. You guys enjoy your Tuesday. We'll talk to you on Wednesday morning. 
And as always, do not wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate and wait.